0: Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the family dynamics within a family office and specifically how to make those dynamics work in your favor. For that, I'm joined by Michael Beduzzi and Tom Stewart. Michael is the managing partner of DaVinci Global Consulting, a consulting firm that specializes in advising families on wealth and the businesses they own, and he leads DaVinci's Family Office Services Group. Tom Stewart will be a familiar name to many of our listeners, having been involved with ACG for a long time. He is the Chief Knowledge Officer at Achieve Next, which offers a combination of peer-to-peer learning, research and insights, and coaching, career development, and other programs, all designed to help people and companies grow. Before joining Achieve Next, Tom was the Executive Director of the National Center for the Middle Market, and he's also the author of several books, including Woo, Wow, and Win. It's great to have you both here. Before we get into the discussion, I want to ask each of you to talk about your experience working with family offices to set the stage and help contextualize our conversation a bit. Michael, you want to kick it off?
1: Yes, well, I've been working with families of wealth and family-owned businesses for over 35 years and in various capacities through my career. Uh, mostly in the professional advisory capacity and not as a consultant. That came about roughly in 2000 when I transitioned from a professional advisor to a consulting role.
0: And Tom, what about you?
2: Well, my, my observation has been mostly as an observation. Uh, uh, in my role at the National Center for the Middle Market, I worked with a few people who had family offices. One of our board members did. I've gotten to know a few others through, through uh Michael, uh, but also uh, just sort of through general experience, and I think my real expertise here is the context in which a lot of family offices work, in terms of the overall middle market and and family offices as sort of a private capital vehicle.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the topic of family dynamics, which we're going to talk about today, that was an idea that you brought to me as we were exploring topics for this episode. So I thought before we get into it, it might be helpful to frame why this is an important topic for listeners to be thinking about. So Tom, can, can you say more about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And let me pick this up. When we at the National Center for the Middle Market published a study of major transitions in middle market companies, whether it was a change of CEO, change of ownership, or whatever it was one of the things that we discovered was that people were mostly satisfied with what you might call the hard side of deals. This is for the middle market as a whole, whether it's selling to private equity, anything. They were sort of satisfied with with the balance sheet and income statement side of what the deals were, but their biggest sources of dissatisfaction came from the soft side. And some of that soft side was with family members and investors. Some of that soft side was with employees, but the biggest sources of pain turned to be turned out to be the non-financial aspects of the deal. It's about that time, shortly thereafter, I met Michael, and we sort of started talking about that. And he said, well, yeah, I see that every day in in the family business consulting. And Michael, you can take it from there.
1: Well, um, I, I think with advisors in particular, the, the services that people are getting, Uh, even in family office situations is more oriented towards the quantitative and objective side of decision-making. But it's really in the qualitative and subjective areas that advisors don't feel as comfortable because human beings are complex and we're emotional. And many technicians are specialists in their technical areas of expertise and really feel uncomfortable when they're put in a situation to have to deal with the human element of things. So a good decision needs to be framed from both quantitative, qualitative and subjective and objective uh, ways of looking at an issue. And what I find is when that doesn't take place, the outcomes that everyone hopes to achieve don't materialize because that human equation is not factored in.
0: And given that those human complexities are the source of so many deals that go awry or, you know, in a family office context, potential conflict, even, you know, it seems like they would be more top of mind. So can you say more about why these dynamics are still overlooked in a lot of cases?
1: Well, again, first is people that generally are working in that element of uh, providing solutions to people around complex problems uh, are comfortable with their level of expertise and their knowledge, but not, they haven't been trained or is familiar with dealing with the other qualitative uh, and subjective areas. And specifically, it takes a lot of time to, to do that work. And most advisors bill by the hour, their clients are expecting certain outcomes for that. And they're not expecting those advisors to, spend hours upon hours helping them learn about themselves, discover um, where they're aligned and not aligned with their spouse or business owners, uh, fellow business owners. And so it, it, it just doesn't lend itself to the, the typical model of technical problem solving that advisors uh, are expected to deliver to clients and what clients are expecting.
2: So it's sort of like that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if I'm a lawyer, I can see the legal aspects of that. But, but we've all had those conversations with lawyers or other advisors where they say, well, the choice is really up to you. This is, I can tell you about the law, but the choice is really up to you. And then I think we all know from our own experience that, that often in the family itself, some of these conversations just don't happen or, or they happen in some contexts, but it may be a little more awkward in the context of the business or the family office, just as, you know, I mean, a fam- if you think of a family office as, a, a, as an investment vehicle, gosh, we simply have, we, we have similar conversations just talking with our spouses about whether we should buy Colgate or, 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 <laughs> or, or, or Procter & Gamble, you know,
1: which is- Well, yeah. you know, if, <laughs> uh, if you talk to s- attorneys, many of them will admit that uh, significant portion of the documents they create are never signed. And, uh, and part of the reason for that is because the clients don't have the clarity and confidence to move forward. Uh, oftentimes, it's because there's so little time discussing what the why is and where people want to go and and reconciling those differences. It comes down to the, the client asking the advisor, well, what do you recommend? And so it becomes the advisor's plan based on their values and their objectives and their goals, so to speak. And so as a result of that, when something happens where that document needs to, to be implemented, the people involved with that are disillusioned because they didn't communicate it, they didn't understand it. Uh, you know, it's not what the... The families wanted it because there was poor communication, so you know it really works out better for everyone, particularly the advisors, to do more probing into these so-called softer issues because th- there will be a better outcome for everyone. Things will go most more smoothly, and the client satisfaction level will will go up
0: higher. Mm-hmm. And there's an adage I've heard within the family office community about wealth that goes something along the lines of "shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations." Um, I think that that kind of speaks to the, a consequence of of what can go wrong if some of these dynamics aren't addressed. So, I guess you know, first question is: Is there truth to that adage based in on what you've observed? And if so, what what contributes to that sort of wealth erosion?
1: Yeah, absolutely true, and. I think for us, one of the things we think we somewhat uniquely bring to the market is not necessarily the concept I'm going to speak about, but the application of it, and that is the idea of family capitals or life capital. So all of us, when we think about capital, we think about financial capital. And up until fairly recently, family offices function was really to, to grow and perpetuate and preserve the family wealth of family capital and everything else was secondary. But what we found is is that uh, when the the way that produces the outcome clients want, and what clients want, when I, I've asked hundreds of people what matters most to them, and they say, well, it's my children or grandchildren. And so if that really is the objective of people, I think all of us understand that uh, providing financial capital to our children, while it, it is important, uh, if it's not done correctly, it could do more harm than good. And that's why we all hear as advisors, uh, clients say, well, how much is enough to leave my children? Because they, they don't want money to spoil their children's potential and capabilities uh, and, and limits them instead of providing opportunities and wings to fly. So what we find is that really the, the solution is found in the other five non-financial areas of wealth a family has, which is their intellectual capital, their human capital, spiritual capital, uh, entrepreneurial capital, and social capital. And so all families invest in those capitals for their children to some degree. Most of it is uh, uh, unconsciously and not really driven by purpose. But if families use their money, because most families of wealth they're overwhelmed with the complexity of how do I pass on my money? I have too much money to use in my lifetime. How do I convey it to other people that I want to bless with my money? Well, one way is to redirect some of that money that they would maybe be interested in doing other things with into investing and growing these five non-financial capitals of the family. Because if uh, a rising generation is really trained at a high level And developing human capital, intellectual capital, social, spiritual, and entrepreneurial capital, then you can give them any amount of money you want to and be confident to know that they will use it wisely. They would be good stewards of that money. They would grow it. They were perpetuated over multiple generations. And it's not doing that that causes the adage of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves to be as as real as it is, unfortunately in very few families go beyond the third generation of passing wealth.
2: You know, you're reminding me of a story um, involving a family, of, a very distinguished family of publishers with with, with which I worked. But, but if you think about those five other kinds of capital, I mean, we all know, and my own work on intellectual capital has, has, has shown it, that, yeah, financial capital helps, but the generation of wealth, the real creation of wealth is not just taking that money and putting it in a index fund, it's applying the other capitals to that seed money, which makes it grow, right? And and this was a family that after three generations, basically disconnected from the core family business that had been the generator of, of wealth and wealth of all kinds, and just became a family of rich people. And and, and it was sort of by, by disconnecting from this source of generation. They simply became, you know, what I guess the, the, the 19th century people would call rentiers. I mean, they were living off the, they were living off the proceeds. And you know what? It's, they, their lives became, it, they, it wasn't church to shirt shirts or it was very nice shirts, you know, sea, sea Island cotton shirts. But they lost the dynamism that had made them kind of cool people. And it was sad.
0: It actually makes me think of the show, uh, the HBO show, Succession, um, which which brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which was around family businesses and you know how a family can deal with the family issues when there is a business involved.
1: Well, first you have to think of what's in play, and that is you're dealing with three different systems, each system being complex. That's the system of the family, the system of the business operations, and the system of ownership. And those three, when they come together as they do, it's what causes family businesses to be so complex to operate successfully over multiple generations. And and part of that is because a person involved in those systems can be in one of seven seats. So, for example, they could be a member of the family and a member of the business, but not an owner of the business, and so forth. But each one of those seven seats have seven different perspectives, seven different ways of viewing things. And when when you're not aligned, um, then it's very difficult for any endeavor in life to be successful, whether it's sports or business or family. And so uh, those are that's kind of the framework that we're working in when we're talking about family, families of businesses. But
2: Michael, when you think about that, so I've got the the family. I'm a I'm a steward, right? I've got the family business, if there were one, and then there's the, the business of the family, I mean, which could be the family office, right? And it strikes me that they can all be aligned or they could all, or there could be sources of conflict with each one, right? So I, in my role in the family, could have, could have conflict or synergies, positive or negative synergies, I guess, with each of the others. And, and, and that could be true of every member of the family, right? So it could be one, one heck of a Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you bring some good points up. First, the family office will, will encapsulate all three systems, which brings the, which causes a, a lot of work, but also the need for both the, the softer and harder sides of an issues is to be represented there. The, the other thing is if you're a member of the family, but not a member of the business or owner, you're not getting benefits oftentimes like the others that are involved in that so there's conflicts that arise there also in family businesses oftentimes the business is talked about every day in the midst of the family so then it creates a for rising generations conflicts because it's always about the business um, it's not about them it's not about the family it's the topic of conversation always revolves around the business and when you have Family members that are in the business, you have two, two different standards. You have, for example, if you're in the family, you're valued just by being a member of the family. Where if you're in the business, you're valued by your productivity, your efficiency, you know, things of that nature, which are two different standards that you have to uh, go by. And, and parents, or if they're owners of the business, wear different hats, you know, as mom and also CEO. Uh, you know, and that adds to the complexity. And so you could see, if you look at it from the human dimension, that if you try to solve problems without focusing on that, and I think even more important, probably to me, it's even more important to get that part right, because once you figure out that part, how you solve problems becomes self-evident in many respects.
0: And I'm interested in the in how you bridge that, you know, between I'm a family member, but I'm not actively involved in the business yet. So for you know a, a member of the rising generation that wants to play a greater role in the business and and develop a, a stewardship mentality that's needed for multi generational success, how do you engage them? What does that look like?
1: Well, I, th- I think the most common way I see in family offices is the concept of a family bank, and the family bank could be a dynasty-type trust. But it, it could be something informal. It doesn't even have to be a trust. It's a bucket of money that is used to develop the non-financial capitals of, of the family. So it could be money that is used to develop skills and abilities of the rising generations in many different forms and fashions. It It's... Provides for family meetings so the family can come without expense to an event, and that event can talk about the family and can also bring in experts to talk about other areas to grow the knowledge base and the experience of the rising generations. Uh, We, our firm, actually has developed something new called the Rising Leaders Forum, the Rising Generations Forum, where it's actually a three-year curriculum to take people through a process, the rising generation, which also includes the leaders of the business and the uh, matriarch and patriarch of the family to to help develop the non-financial as well as the financial aspect because we dovetail with the family's advisors as part of that program.
2: You know, I I remember once meeting a woman who worked for a um, high-tech company in the Southwest aerospace company. And there were three generations at work in the, com- in the company, uh, the grandparental, parental, and the, and the children uh, who were in their 20s or so. And they, they were not able to talk because they had completely, they were in huge fights because they had completely different or they thought Id- completely different ideas about their priorities the grand parental generation wanted to manage the business and the, enter- and the whole enterprise for cash. They just wanted profitability, cash. We just want pro- focused on profitability. The parental generation was focusing on the long-term growth of enterprise value, and the kids all wanted to start new things. And, and so the one was harvesting, one was growing the core, one was saying, let's branch out. And they didn't realize it took them a long time at some sort of outside counseling before they realized, they weren't really disagreeing. They were just speaking generational truths. And, and, and the kids needed something to get their, sink their teeth in and grow. And the parents were thinking long-term, and the, young, and the older guys were thinking relatively... And once they had that, I guess it's almost a psychological conversation, they began to be able to make investments more sensibly because they understood the other's point of view. And they did have the resources, as Michael's talking about with the family bank, they did have the resources to say, actually, we can do this for the kids without jeopardizing, you know, grandma and grandpa's tour, uh, cruises, you know?
0: Sure, yeah, like rather than an all or nothing mindset, how do we come to an agreement where we can all kind of yeah. have our priorities met? Yeah, and, under, and
2: with empathy, understand, oh, actually, they're all seeing the world in a perfectly appropriate way. And when I was their age, I saw the world that way. That's how we started the business with, you know but 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 empathy can get lost sometimes in these sort of highly fraught kinds of conversations or str- or as in that complex family office
1: system yeah. yeah let me throw something in along those lines too is that families oftentimes fear getting into discussions about sensitive issues because it's maybe been pain points in the past and so as a result of that there is a dread sometimes of talking about difficult issues, having difficult conversations in the family. And so bringing in people that are experts in facilitation is key because they create the safe environment where people can feel free to speak their mind, speak to power, so to speak to be able to speak to parents, leaders of the business, but in a very productive, um, safe way that produces unbelievably good results and in every case I've ever worked with families to work through problems in a facilitated manner they all always walk out and say gee I I was really not expecting to go that smoothly so it it can be done that's the message to get out that it if, if if a family's dreading some kind of conversation it can be successfully handled And uh, there's a much uh, there's a release that comes safe. We finally have gotten over that hump and we can look to the future. No,
0: know, it it makes sense why that would be scary, because I think it's one thing to have a disagreement or conflict within a boardroom and then you get to go home afterwards. But if you live with those people, or you're going to see them at Thanksgiving to Tom's point. I mean, that creates a whole extra level of fear, I can imagine. So I can certainly see the value of of having an outside party come in to um, broker some of those discussions. So, you know, from where I sit at ACG, I, I talk to a lot of leaders um, who tell me about the role that corporate culture plays within their organizations and how that's a contributor to success. What is the equivalent for families and family offices and and how does their view on culture maybe look differently than it would in a more like traditional corporate environment?
1: My experience is that families think in terms when they think of culture, it's mom and dad thinking, how do I assure that my children and grandchildren accept my value system, Uh, whether it's their belief system, thinking about societal issues, etc. and so forth. And And that's certainly understandable. But it's very difficult in this day and age for different generations to Tom's earlier point, to see eye to eye when it comes to all these types of issues. And so what I find that helps remedy that issue to develop a very positively oriented culture. Because keep in mind, you know, there might, it it happens often where a child finds themselves not accepted in the family system because of life choices they've made that differ from their parents. So I think we can, we we're successful in working with families around these issues to keep them together as a family unit and, not having people feel like they have to leave uh, or being kicked out of the family system because of that conflict. And and where we find commonalities when we talk about unifying principles. Um, So a unifying principle might look something like we're a family of integrity. Um, We're a forgiving family. We're a generous family. Um, Those are the types of things that most families can come to agreement around and not feel that there's conflict. So uh, I I think culture, from a family standpoint, is vitally important in in any business. You have to be aligned in order to make progress. And culture is the pivotal part of all alignment that takes place in business or in families. And, And what helps to facilitate that, too, is a governance system. In other words, where, where problems occur is when expectations aren't met. When That's where stress occurs when we our expectations are not met. And so therefore, if there's a system where people know their environments for them to remedy and reconcile things that don't have to be done around a kitchen table, um, but it is a framework, a structure for moving forward, it, it reduces the stress and strain that people have when there's n- they don't know the process and procedures to follow to, to, rem- to, to get a satisfactory outcome that they're looking for, at least to feel that they've been heard and listened to and it's been evaluated and considered. And in most cases, when that environment exists, people are willing to go along with what the majority of people want to do uh, with that understanding.
2: I love that governance point. I'm also thinking of some of the, and uh, uh, you know, it's like, here's sort of some statements of our basic principles and here's some governance. And then if you also think about culture, there's some other things about culture that sort of classic corporate culture things that map over pretty closely and, and, and in, in interesting ways in families and family offices. Like one is uh, how risk averse or risk embracing is a corporate culture versus a family culture. And you can have, you know, you want to make sure that you've had, there's some understanding about that. There's sort of also like open and closed. How open is the culture and how closed is the culture open to new ideas, open to new people or closed to new ideas and closed to new people. And you know, that, that can be, that dynamic can be very strong in, in, in family situations as well. Um, and and then there's a culture change a lot of cultures differ in terms of how hierarchical they are how top down they are versus how open and so if you think about open and closed hierarchical non-hierarchical risk embracing or, or 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 risk averse or maybe you could call it change resistant or change hungry those are some sliders that exist in cultures and it you can fall into bad habits That's where some advisors and and governance things can help you get out of those bad habits to get the kind of culture that you think is going to be healthy and promote the growth of the family enterprise and the family office over time.
1: Um, You made me think of something. Uh, An issue is communication. So what I find is when families spend time learning good communication skills that is an enormous help to everything we've been talking about. And, to, and specifically to Tom's point, whether it being an either or, it can be a hybrid. So when people understand one another, they're willing to figure out ways to accommodate everybody's needs. So if a family, is, particularly a business owner that's later in life and in they, security and they don't want to change and rock the boat and take risks, well, they could spin off some money to younger generations to form a division of the company or to do something that uh, allows those rising gens to do what they feel is important and, and not risk the, the, the primary source of wealth for the family, uh, for the business owner. So there's accommodations that come about when you go through the right process, whether it being I'm right, you're wrong. We're doing it this way. We're not doing it that way. It, it could be a coming together of people, and and when you come together as a family, you preserve the family well-being, uh, and particularly, mom's happy when the family's happy, and and dad's happy when mom's happy. Right. So, <laughs>
0: It also seems like some of the cultural attributes you touched on, um, you know, for example, our family prides itself on its integrity, things like that, um, seem like they'd be hugely advantageous for family offices that have a direct investing strategy. And so, or maybe going and, you know, looking to buy businesses and competing with a financial buyer, for example, um, it seems like that's something that could be a real differentiator for them as they go into the market looking for deals.
1: You're right, Katie, that's a great example. Another example is what I find is most families find commonality in, in charitable giving, in philanthropy. And so uh, to us, that's, what keep, that's a good uh, thing to, to create family glue, uh, where regardless of where children, grandchildren end up, they can come together around um, who they want to give to, what impact they want to make on their community and the world, and it's a very positively oriented thing, which, um, and so usually my experience is when you find successful multi-generational family, there usually is a very uh, strong core aspect of the family around philanthropy. Interesting.
0: Well, this has been an extremely interesting discussion. Before I let you both go, um, I did want to ask if there's anything else you wanted to say or, or any parting comments you'd want to leave a listener with.
2: Let me go first, since Michael's the real expert here. I, I just want to think—you know—one of the things that, from my perspective, getting to know Michael and his work has been to, to to realize that sometimes these these icky, messy human issues look icky, messy, and human, and and I I can't break them down into PowerPoint slides and bullet points and so on and so forth. So that, so that's one of the reasons I think people shy away from them. And the thing that I'm struck by is that. And I think that's a lot of reasons that a lot of advisors shy away from too. It's right. It's not in my wheelhouse. But what's really interesting is these things are amenable to a to a structured process. I mean, to you know, you can open them up and you can actually say, here are the things we need to do so that we can get the family dynamics aligned in such a way that the business and the office are stronger. So that's to me is the big lesson from what I've learned in this is this is a solvable, I won't call it a problem. It's a, it's a puzzle that can be put together or that can be worked to to get better results. And it's not one of those things that, you know, is just really hard and it takes a miracle or magic. It, it takes process um, but it doesn't take a miracle or magic.
1: Tom, that was uh, perfectly stated. And I would just add the the word hope. You know, a lot of families, um, generally there's two types of families, I I think, that seek this type of work. One is a family of excellence. They know there's more out there for them. They want to further unlock their full potential at all levels of the family. And then the second one is families in distress. And the families in distress, I would say, there is hope. Don't give up. And to Tom's point, there is no solution that's unsolvable. It's just maybe how long it takes to get to the breakthrough, but it's solvable. So uh, thank you, Katie, for allowing us to share our experiences with you and and your uh, organization and members. And we appreciate the privilege to do so.
0: Absolutely. And I love when we can end these on an optimistic note. So I really appreciate you both joining me today. Michael, Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.